Welcome to the Loved Called Gifted podcast. This is your place to come for musings about spirituality, identity and purpose. I'm your host, Catherine Cowell. I'm delighted for this episode of the Love Called Gifted podcast to be joined by Maria Garvey. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Catherine. I live in Northern Ireland. I live here in Ross Trevor. And what brought me to Northern Ireland over 20 years ago, actually, because I grew up in the south of Ireland, was to found a large community here. My work over the years has been about creating communities of belonging from people who find themselves marginalised, actually, in any way, but primarily with intellectual disabilities in the context of L'Arche. And further on then, I found myself encountering really the loneliness of homeless people and men and women with mental health issues who perhaps were never thought of in terms of community as much as houses and health. And so part of my work since then has been engaging with people who experience themselves marginalised in any way and giving them an opportunity have an experience of being able to contribute such that they know that their lives matter and mm-hmm. that their lives make a difference. So th- who I am really is a commitment to everyone knowing that they matter, no matter what. I think that's beautiful. I like that phrase of community of belonging is is really meaningful. I know your faith runs through who you are very deeply. And I, I wonder how your understanding of God connects with that understanding of community of belonging. Yeah. I mean, my understanding of God is God is a space in which everyone and everything has its place. Everything and everyone belongs. So when I pray, I I pray into that space of infinite belonging. I love to be able to come back to that space in which all of me belongs and to bring back home the parts that I might have sent into exile in order to look good or you know, show up the right way, you know, that feeling of showing up the right way. So I think God is a homecoming space for me, a space Mm -hmm. in which I experience the deepest sense of home, almost like a love. And I suppose in many, many ways, my prayer would be that I also, in my looking into the world, bestow belovedness. And I think I'm particularly keen on, I don't know, just allowing people who might not know that they are beloved have that experience of you are really precious. Yeah, that sort of understanding of of God and and God as as space in which we all belong. I wonder if that's something which has grown in you, or is it something that you think you started with? I remember when I was a child, my favorite place was to sit on the windowsill, and on the mantelpiece there was a fireplace in this bedroom, and on the mantelpiece there was this little plastic ornament, and it was like little gates. And when you opened the gates, Jesus was standing behind them mm-hmm. and a plastic, you know, I presume my mother bought it at some mission or something like that. I remember always those gates feeling like there was no end to where they could go. It was like mm-hmm. the mystery. I remember opening the gates and imagining that there was no end. It was infinite where they could go. And there were times where I would imagine myself going through the gates and there was no limitation beyond those gates. And anything that I might have been feeling sitting on the windowsill disappeared when I brought myself through those gates. So I guess that I have that sense of a space to go to 
that God is a space to go to when I might feel a bit lonely or lost was there even when I was a child my sense of God then was those gates opening interesting and I haven't actually thought about that for a very long time so thank you for reminding me yeah I just uh, yeah I always had a sense that God was a place to go yeah and that's not a sense that everybody has terribly clearly is it yeah because we don't learn about God as a space as a comfortable space of belonging we quite often learn about God, in terms of the Catholic Church at least, as rules to be kept. And if I do this, then I will. It's a more like a transactional relationship or a contractual relationship. If you behave this way, then you will earn your way into life after a hereafter. Whereas my sense is that God is not about contract, but about covenant, which is a promise. Hmm. And I love the idea of the prom- like the promises of God in Scripture. For me, all about belonging. I will yeah. be with you always. You know, I will be with, what a promise. I will be there for you. I will be with you. So I think from very early on in life, I show, was it a choice? Or was it just me? Was it God's grace? I don't know. But I always thought of God as the promise of infinite possibility. Mm. I grew up in a small town in Cork in Ireland. And there was a beautiful church with magnificent stained glass windows. And when we were small children, we all, you know, marched into the church. My mother first, my father at the end and five of us like ducklings in between. And we always sat in the same seat. This was the old way of being in church. During mass, because it was from time to time boring to a child, I used to squint my eyes and look through the stained glass windows. And again, it was that sense of looking into the beyond, looking into what was beyond what was happening in church. I still have that sense, actually, even when I go to church, still, if I close my eyes, I have that sense of church itself being a way to the beyond. Like the gates and the ornament. Yeah, exactly the same. Exactly the same. And a lot of my work, actually, when I think about it, is about giving people a beyond to give people access to possibilities that are not quite visible to them, but that give them the possibility of being free, you know, free from the limits that, that tell them who they are. Yeah, I I wonder what stories come to mind if you think about examples of how that's worked out in practice or how that is working out. One of the things that that I suppose comes to mind immediately is a young man I worked with in a place called Sandy Row in Belfast. And it's if you lived here, you'd Sandy Row would be a name you'd know about because it it would be a more a loyalist, unionist area community, strongly engaged in protecting and defending its own identity and culture, but it also is an area of great social deprivation. And I met a young man and we'll call him for the sake of this, Jim. And Jim came to me one day. I was, my work in Sandy Row was to be a holy loiterer, to loiter in a community centre where young disenfranchised men, men who had had difficulty getting employment or keeping employment or, it was the community centre, but largely it was young men who used to come in who had nowhere else to be and hang out. So my job was to hang out with them and just to befriend them, really. So one guy came to me one day, Jim, and he said, I'd like you to help me to do my CV. So I thought, oh, gosh, we're on a winner here. And as we started, I said to him, why your CV? And he said, thing is, Maria, I want to stay on the brew, which in Northern Ireland is unemployment benefit, and I have to prove that I'm looking for work. So if I show them a new CV, that'll be proof enough. (laughs) I said to him, I said, oh, Jim, I said, I don't like that. It doesn't make me feel very useful or helpful. And he said, it'll be huge if I can stay on the brew. 
So we started off by asking him what his employment history was. He listed the things that he had done for two days or three days. He hadn't managed to keep work for any length of time. So I said to him, I'm guessing that your employment history is never going to get you work. And so I said, so let's look at who they'll be getting. So he started off by saying an alcoholic. And I said, well, I write that down. And he said, no, no. And, and then I said, what else? A druggie. I know I wasn't going to write that down. An ex-con. And so the list got longer <laughs> and none of them were very flattering. So I said to him, did I think of anything else? And he said, didn't I come on time today? And I said, you certainly did. He said, what would you call that? And I said, well, let's call it, uh, you're a man of your word. And he said, are you going to write that down? And I said, yeah, I will. And then I, he said, I last week I made the, the plan to come and I and I did show up. And I said, you did. He said, what would that be? And I said, dependable. So we wrote that down. And then he said, and what would you call it if you broke into a house and you had to turn all the spice jars around before you left? <laughs> I said to him, well, I might call that crazy. I said, what would you call it? He said, I have ODC. And I said, OCD. And he said, that's it. And I have dyslexia as well. So I said to him, I said, but let's not call it a label. Let's call it attention to detail. So we were that down. And as we went on, I could see him visibly changing, Catherine. And he said to me, could you write down too many good things about a person? And I said, no, I don't think you could. You know, he said, my dad was involved in the troubles here in Northern Ireland. And he said, if you go down the road, there's a poppy wreath in his name on the wall. He was killed when we were very young. I have a twin and we were only five. And he said, sometime after that, my sister, the eldest, went out one night and she got drunk and she came home and she vomited and she choked and died. And then he said, and a few years after that, my mom couldn't do it anymore. So she died by suicide. She took an overdose. And he said, I was only eight when mom died. Mm. And he said, what would you call that? And I said, I'd call that a miracle. I'd call it a miracle that you're still here and still showing up. But the word we'd put on your CV is resilient. Mm. So we wrote that down and then. I said to him, is there, is there anything else you'd like me to say? And he said, I don't know. And I said, if you died tonight and your mates were talking about you tomorrow in the pub and you could hear them, what would you love them to say? And he said, nobody will ever say it, Maria. I said, what would you love them to say? He said, no, I can't say it. I'm too ashamed. And I said, try me, Jim. And he said, I'd love them to say I was a gentleman. So we wrote that down on his CV and then he asked me immediately to, to print it out. And he had it coming. Yes, he came out of the room with me. He said to his friends, you all thought you knew me, but Maria really knows me. This is who I am. <laughs> and he held up the CV. So for a few months, I met him on the street. Every time I met him, he patted his pocket and he said, I have myself in my pocket. <laughs> so um, just to finish the story. A number of months after that, I met him and he said, I got a job. And I said, are you serious, Jim? What did you get? And he got a job making molds for a bus. And he said they needed someone who had attention to detail. And the, this job was on trial for the first three months. And if he didn't make a bubble in the mold because it took pouring hot metal, then they would give him the job permanently. But he never made a bubble. Hmm. And his claim to fame 
was, but when I met him on the street in Sandy Row, he shouted down at me, I'm the gentleman who never makes a bubble. Now I know myself. Hmm. Catherine, he's he's still working. That's brilliant. So I suppose for me, giving people access to who they are beyond any of the labels that limit them. I love to see people recognising who they are when they're not what they do or when they're not what they think or when they're not what their history is or their geography or their biography. Like, who are you when you're not any of those things? And he was the gentleman who never makes bubbles. Hmm. I just love it instead of alky and ex-con and druggy, all those labels. So that's an example, really, I suppose, of giving somebody, giving somebody the space to be fully themselves. Yeah. I was reading the story in John's Gospel where they, they're in the middle of the lake and Jesus is walking across the water and they're a bit worried about him and then they work out who it is. And there was a little phrase that I hadn't spotted before and it was, and they were glad to welcome Jesus into the boat. Mm. I don't know why that kind of comes to mind as we're talking, but mm. your picture of going into the space where Jesus is through the plastic gates into the infinite beyond. The other side of that is the fact that that Jesus is pleased, that God is pleased to come into the boat with us. Yeah, I've seen that actually. He was walking towards them and they were glad. I work a lot today with the church, actually. Yeah. And the church has become a marginalised body in many ways. Mm. It's become, in many cases, because of history now of abusive situations and all that has gone on with church. The church and many of the people engaged with church are almost too afraid to to say so. There's a certain shame now that that gets has has become associated with church. Yeah. And in a way, when you talk about and they were glad, maybe we're in our boat so busy trying to save ourselves, so busy trying to row really hard Mm. that we don't see the God who walks gently on the water towards us. That we don't actually see it. We're so busy. Our heads are down trying to keep the church alive in whatever way it is that we want to keep it alive. And we don't see necessarily or stop long enough to see that God is close in ways that we couldn't even imagine. Yeah. I mean, who'd ever imagine somebody walking to you on water? Mm-hmm. You were a fisherman. Like it's the last thing in the world. Like if you think about it, really, it must have been an extraordinary thing for them. So incredible. Yeah. Like it's the last thing you'd expect (laughs) is to see your God or anyone walking on water in your direction. Was a bit of concern before he got into the boat. (laughs) Yeah. But at that point when they were when he got into the boat, they were glad to to welcome him. Glad to see a sign of the impossible. Mm. I thought the relief of it, Catherine. That's what I'm hearing is. At mm. some point when they finally, when he finally got into the boat, they were glad. Yeah. Like all the hard work, all the concern, all the worry, all the confusion. Sort of. I mean, at least in my own life, when I go through hard times, there's a moment where I break down enough. You know, it's like I'm weary from the concern. Yeah. But there comes a moment where I'm just glad when something happens, mm. when something extraordinary just walks. I... I broke my arm very recently and I had been working way too hard. Like I'd been working and I'm talking about it for a while. I'm working too hard. I'm working too hard. I need a break. 
it was the last, practically the last thing I said before I fell and shattered my elbow. Mm. It wasn't the break that I was expecting. Uh, and I wouldn't have wanted it to happen this way. But ironically, and I'm not saying that this is good or bad. I mean, the break was very unfortunate. But ironically, it gave me the space to come back home to who I am. Like I had become almost what I do. Mm. I had become my reputation or my availability for people. Or I'd become an unending yes to everything. Mm. And the risk was that I would lose the love that's at the heart of my work. You know, it just be, it had become hard work. Yeah. So what came in unexpectedly was this break. I am not saying that it was easy or that it is easy. It isn't. And I, I like I'm impatient now. I want my my right arm to work properly. Mm. But it did give me a space to step back again and ask myself, is this who I am? Is this who I want to be so busy that actually I haven't eyes to see anymore? We talked about belonging earlier. I think in our time, busyness, for me at least, is the enemy of belonging. Busyness is a great way for me of avoiding my own loneliness or my own, you know, the ordinary human mm. existential things. Like if I'm busy, I feel important. Yeah. And it's easy to fall into that. So I'm just imagining them in the boat and being busy trying to keep afloat mm. and then being confused and constantly, they must have had consternation about all of it. And then finally, the rest, you know, the gladness. I feel that right now because I'm just just about starting out again after this time of recovery. And what I feel most of all is just the gladness of encountering people again and and being back to myself, having time to see and having time to just to encounter properly yeah. other people rather than rushing around. I hope it lasts. <laughs> <laughs> what are the things for you that help it to last? Funny you should ask that. I was literally this morning thinking about that so that I mm. don't go off track so quickly again. One of the big things that I've done all for many, many, many years is I read the scripture of the day every morning. The script In the Catholic Church, we have, and in, I think in, in the Anglican Church too, a lectionary where the scripture of the day is prescribed. It isn't one that you choose for yourself. So I read that early in the morning with a cup of tea in bed generally. And then I meditate. Oh, we could call it meditation. I'm often sitting, you know, one thought rolling in after another monkey mind. But at least for 20 minutes, I'm sitting with whatever mm -hmm. arises in that word. And then I generally write a journal for about another 20 minutes, half an hour. And usually what happens is one word will float up from all the words and it will give direction to my day. It will be the word in the background of, of every day. And that always centers me. Like it's, yeah. just, it's just a very good practice. What else? Walking in nature. I, I live in the middle of nature. Sometimes when I'm too busy, I don't even see it anymore. I become beauty blind. But mm -hmm. I live in a very beautiful place. And stopping and walking and stopping and looking really helps. I have a cat. Me and my cat. I think Julian Norwich also had a cat, so that helps me. She's extremely good for bringing me back to re back into the moment. Mm -hmm. she, she just I mean, she loves me unconditionally. Well, the condition is that I feed her, I suppose. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it feels like unconditional love. She demands nothing other than food. Uh, but she's very good at wanting to be petted from time to time. And she'll come right up. And sometimes when I'm on Zoom calls, 
she actually comes and closes the lid of my laptop. <laughs> much to say, you've had enough of this. Give me a bit of attention. But funny, they're all things that bring me home to the moment. Yeah. And what really allows me to live well and live close to God, the God that is the space for for everything, it's to come home to the moment, to like really focus on and this moment and now this moment and be present fully in the moment. I think that's probably the biggest thing. And then what brings me back to that is prayer. Hmm. And the cat and walking in wild nature and I don't know, treats with friends, do you know, like a glass of yeah. wine down the village beside the sea with friends, beauty and friendship, all those things we talk about. And I think we all in one way or another really appreciate them. It's just to make sure that I make time for them. Yes. There's something, isn't there, about kind of getting your eye in, in those those sort of de- deliberate moments of making space. And then it's easier to spot. So it's easier to see Jesus in your conversation with Jim if you've kind of had that space yeah. earlier on yeah. at some point. Yeah, I, I noticed for me that there's sort of a rhythm that happened. So I know now that it's fairly typical that if I can get two or three days away and that doesn't happen that often, but, you know, a little bit of concentrated time makes it much, much easier to be sort of sensitive to those encounters with God in the times that come after that and the setting aside time, whether that's kind of going for a walk or taking my journal out to a coffee shop or whatever it happens to be, those moments are easier to enter into if you're kind of already had a bit of time. And then and then the busyness happens and you have to sort of recalibrate. I think it's a fairly... Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with busyness as long as no, we're no. aware, as long as I'm aware that I'm busy. Like what can happen to me is I get numb. Like I'm so busy mm. for so long. I, you know, if I let go of my morning routine, that's the one that's really important. I mean, it's easier for me because I don't have children and I don't have grandchildren. You know, I don't have anybody to think about in the morning, in a sense. So, but if I let go of that, and I sometimes do, because what can often happen, actually, Catherine, is I get into a good novel and (laughs) I wake up in the morning, I just read one more chapter and then, (laughs) but then one chapter turns to two chapters or three chapters and then I'm getting up to do whatever I have to do in the day. So like if I'm not aware that I'm busy, it can become a habit. You know, it's like another part of my work is helping people to inhabit the lives that they want for themselves. Hmm. So it's not about wanting them. Look, you know, the road to hell, as they say, is paved with good intention. So I can have all the intentions in the world, but unless I turn something into a habit so that it eventually becomes automatic, nothing changes. So we call it inhabiting your best life. And what do I need? What habits do I need to make or break or change? So I'm living the life I want to live. We won't call it more anything or less anything. And that's fun. It's more fun to do it that way. You kind of say, tell me about the life you'd like to live and what do you need to be to have in that life so that you you stay well. And let's begin to inhabit it, which would mean to, like, to actually do it. You know, most of us want something other than perhaps we have or more of or less of or whatever. But wanting it and actually doing it are two different things. Like the doing, like it's it's the I suppose inhabiting it or doing it regularly enough so that it becomes part of me. That's the challenge. And I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard. I think, I mean, for myself at least. I can just get addicted to being on a Ferris wheel 
like constantly mm. on the go. So it's like breaking an addiction. I'm just thinking back to something that you said at the beginning of this conversation, which was about things go wrong when you're not being who you are, but sort of, and I can't remember the words. That you I think used. I said when I'm trying to prove myself instead of yes. being myself. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I wonder whether the busy, it's not the busyness that's the problem. It's the fact that the busyness kind of distracts us from being who we are. Yeah, because in fact, if I am myself in action, mm. I can do every bit as much as I do in a day when I'm doing for identity. Do you, do you get it? Sometimes yeah. I'm doing things so that I'm recognized, so that my identity is safe and sound. Oh, Maria, she's always available. Oh, Maria, she's a great listener. Or Oh, Maria, you can count on her. You know, there are sort of labels that I have inside myself, perhaps, but there is something to do with my identity. Yeah. So when I'm serving my identity, like looking good, I say to people sometimes, oh, I'm so good at looking good that I don't recognize <laughs> when looking good feels bad. Mm. You know, it's like I choose looking good over feeling well sometimes. And yeah. that's how it shows up in busyness in my case, because one of the things I learned as a, a little girl, actually, because I was the eldest of five and my mom was worked outside the home, was I was a good girl when I was really responsible and helpful. You know, like I was the eldest, yeah. of course, that helped. But of course, I've grown up with that. Yeah. I'm good when I'm responsible and helpful. That can be in the background driving me to say yes, when in fact, sometimes it would be healthier to say no. Mm. And then all the yeses, you know, add up and then eventually I'm overcommitted and no longer, no longer have the space to really have eyes to encounter God. Do you know what I'm encountering essentially in those days is another thing to do. And I don't know, I presume I'm not the only one. I think there's a lot of me around or a lot of us around. You know, I think it's I think it's a human thing. Yeah, I think so too. To want to look good because, you know, looking good when we were small children meant that we survived. That doesn't necessarily mean that that our families were dysfunctional in any way. But looking good got us attention, got us like even a small baby smiling. Very quickly they learn if I smile at mommy, I will get whatever it is. I'll get her attention. I'll get more food. I'll get more, you know, who knows? But we learn very, very, very young what works. And then it imprisons us as we get older. Mm. Yeah. You know, instead of working from our soul's purpose, we end up serving our survival purpose. For so much of our lives, we're just working to survive. And then at the end of our lives, for many people, they'll say, for all that I've done, I've never lived at all. And I can understand that. Because I think, you know, when in this con the context of this conversation, suppose if you ask me again, who, who is God for me? Another way I might say it is God is life. Mm. When I'm fully alive, I'm very aware of the presence of God. Yeah. And when I'm just trying to survive, which I sometimes am, I'm very absent to the presence of God. Yes. Yeah. And that fully aliveness comes from being who we are, not who we think we need to be, as you put it, to survive. It's yeah. that. Yeah. When we're living out of our authentic selves. Yeah. Yeah. And the freedom of that. Like I was yes. out before I came on the phone with you now today, I sat out in the garden because it's a beautiful day. And I had loads of work to do today. But I sat out mm -hmm. in the garden with a cup of coffee and my book. And I just stopped for a minute and thought, I must be the luckiest human being on earth. 
Mm. And it was nothing other than to sit in a chair outside the front door with a coffee and a book. That's all it took for me to be so deeply grateful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you can infuse all sorts of things with that element of beauty and of of nurture. When I, I led a team of speech and language therapists a number of years ago, and my favourite thing, if I was going to have a meeting with somebody, was to find a nice coffee shop. My feeling was this, we do not need to sit in some grotty hospital meeting room when there's a cafe around the corner that does nice cappuccino. Yeah, absolutely. My mother, God rest her beloved soul, used to say, no one ever found heaven by following a sad saint. Yeah. You know, there's something about living the kind of life that allows joy to rise up in you. Mm. You know, because people need joy. Our world is in need right now of joy. We live in such a frightening time. Yeah. Now, whether we do or whether we don't, the way it's portrayed through media, and I'm not judging the media, but we hear over and over and over again, just catastrophe after catastrophe, likely catastrophe after likely. So we're living into a future without hope. Mm. And I love, I absolutely love the text from Jeremiah 29. You know, it is Yahweh who speaks. I know the plans I have in mind for you. Plans for peace and not destruction and a future filled with hope. Mm. And if you look for me, you will find me. If you come to me with all of your heart, you will find me here already waiting for you. Mm. Now, a future that's filled with hope and where God is always here already waiting for me. It's such a different future than a future where climate migration means that none of us will have enough food. And I'm not suggesting for a minute that we're not responsible for creating a healthier future, but I don't think we're going to get there by making people so frightened that they're paralyzed. And I think we're living in a world that believes that if you frighten people enough, they'd act responsibly. My sense is that love actually is what transforms the world, not fear. Yeah, I would agree with you. Because going back to our last conversation, if we're frightened, then we move into survival mode. We don't act out of our best selves. And we don't, that connection that we have with people kind of goes. Yeah. And in fact, instead of people becoming beloved others, what they become is a threat. Yes. You know, we, we, we start to come from a space of scarcity. So I'm rivaling you rather than a space of abundance where we have enough, Mm. we have enough together. I mean, I, that idea of enough, I think is interesting. Like I, at one level, you could say I'm enough. But at another level, which helps me enormously, is I'm not enough, but together we're more than enough. Mm. You know, I love that idea. I read, I led a retreat many years ago in, mm. in Belgium for men and women with intellectual disabilities and assistants. And they were from all over the world. So it was multilingual. And uh, there was a man who had difficulty just being in a group. And he, he had very challenging behaviours for others. And so in order to keep him steady during this week of retreat, he translated for me. I asked him, he couldn't speak English at all, but he translated for me. So every now and again, he'd say to me, Arrête, Maria, stop, Maria. And then he would translate what I had said. And he only ever translated in three words. Amour, amour, amour. And just love, love, love. So the only thing he could hear me say the entire week was love, love, love. And he said it, he interspersed my my talks with it. And I, their talks were very geared towards people with very, very different ways of being in the world. 
So some of them were us singing songs with wooden spoons painted as microphones. But afterwards, when I asked people what, how the retreat was for them, the only three words they remembered was amour, amour, amour. Hmm. And he, in his way, changed the experience or gave people an experience of safety and of abundance and of freedom and of creativity in a way that I certainly alone could not have done it. Hmm. And I often, often think, Catherine, of Moses and Aaron. Aaron had the words and Moses had the message. And it, Moses could never have delivered his message without his brother Aaron. And I often think that that's what makes the difference, is knowing that I only have one tiny bit and that I need somebody else to bring the rest. Well, where we started was you describing what you do in the world is, is has been about creating communities of belonging. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that really is what you're describing. Yeah, probably. It's like, it's not that, you know, it's it's about mutually transforming relationships. It's not about me coming in, helping you. I think mm. there's nothing worse than being helper and helped because those who are helped don't get to experience their contribution. Yeah. They too are making a huge contribution to life. And that's the thing when I broke my elbow, actually, was I lived here in the countryside uh, three miles out of the village and I couldn't drive for two months. So I needed people constantly to come and do shopping and in the beginning to help me to dress and cut off the sleeves of some of my clothes and all that sort mm. of stuff. And in the beginning, I felt like, I, oh, my God, I'm such a burden. And then I realized what I've always been speaking about is to be asked to help somebody, like to be vulnerable enough to need somebody else's help is to give them a space to shine. Mm. Do you know, and it's not about doing love as much as my life generating love. Mm. We all think, oh, if I do love that scripture text, I think is so interesting. Go out and bring the good news to the poor. Tell prisoners, I'm not even quoting it correctly, but tell prisoners they're prisoners no more. Tell blind people that they can see. Like that text. And then we, I have, and I haven't so much now, but did. We all added on a line to that. If you do that, you'll be very like me. Like you'll be like Jesus if you do all of that. But actually, that line isn't in scripture. But further along in one of the other gospels, there's the line of, when did I not see you? When I was hungry. It's like when I do go out and encounter the other, it's not that I am like Jesus. It's that I will encounter Jesus already there waiting for me. Hmm. So it's the encountering of love that I think allows us to belong. That's yeah. the sense in which when I encounter you, truly I know that your life is a gift to me. The bigger thing is, is that you know that your life is a gift to me. Yes. I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of things. One is that the story of Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman at the well. And the reason he has that conversation is because it's hot and he's tired and he needs a drink. Yeah. Yes. He <laughs> needs her to serve him. Yes. Yeah. And that, like, as I get older, I'm 65 now. And like most other people, well, I don't know. I won't say like most. I'm one of the people who's resist resisting aging. Right. I even have well, that feature on Zoom that improves my appearance. I forget what it's called, but it's <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I have it up to full. <laughs> um, aware of my aging body and I'm resistant to it. You know, I don't want to get old. And one of the things that strikes me in prayer and only in prayer still is that it may be the time when I accomplish my mission most fully. Mm. When my vulnerability of the vulnerability of getting older and not being as independent calls out 
the love of others that generates the space when I am the space in which others can shine. Yeah. You know, like yes. one thing to create the space where others can shine, which has been the nature of my life, but to become the space in which others can shine is, I think, ultimately the deepest spiritual call. Yes. And others will be the space where you get to shine. Absolutely. Absolutely. The One of the things I think I've discovered is that those who generate community are very often the ones that community would never welcome in. Hmm. I think the first time we met when you talked about church without walls, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. I think that's what struck me. And somebody asked me today about you because I knew I was coming on this call. And I Mm -hmm. said, she created a space where everyone who normally might not come in are present because they're just there. They don't have to come in a door. They're already welcome. Mm. And it's that whole idea of being like, insofar as I consider God to be the space where I get to shine then I consider that my own vocation is to become the space where all of us get to shine, not just me, but all of us together. And, yeah. and then I suppose what ends up happening is that in my life, I end up finding myself in the places where people aren't shining. Mm. I, my work in the world has always led me out to where people have lost their light in one way. It's either been taken from them or the world has never recognized it or they've worked so hard they've burnt themselves out. Like it's interesting to work with people who who burn out because all that has happened is their light has gone out and rekindling or reigniting their light. I think of Imos and how their hearts were reignited. Yeah. I love that work of helping them to rekindle the spark in themselves. And when you've burnt out, it's it's because moved just too far away from. Yeah. Yeah. From your own self. Yeah. And so that that phrase, again, you've used this phrase of of God being a place of home. Mm. So it's welcoming people home to themselves, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's nearly always about coming home, isn't it? A coming yes. home over and over and over again and knowing home and going out from home every day. You asked me, like, what mm. helps me? It is really going out every day from home. And then when I'm not well, and that'll happen, like when I say not well, but not at my best, Mm. it's because I've left home and not come home for a while. I've gone too far from home. I've gone too far from home. Yeah. Yeah. Catherine, it's lovely having this conversation. Yeah, that is my work. No matter where I am and what I'm doing, it's always about giving people an opportunity to come home. Mm. You know, if it's in conversation, that can happen anywhere. It can happen absolutely anywhere. I remember there was this man I met and I went into London and I had at that time I had glandular fever and it used to spike on certain days. I wanted to go to to St. Martin of the Fields in the crypt, the crypts there because I love the cafe there and Trafalgar Square, but I was too ill. So I went to Westminster Cathedral and I thought I'd just I'd sit on the seats there and until it was time to go to Heathrow. So I met a man who was homeless, lying in a green, slimy looking sleeping bag on cardboard boxes on the way in at the door. Mm. And I said to him, I said, oh, my God, I'd love to be lying down right now where you are. I was really ill. And he said, would you like a space? And he patted on the ground and he said, I'll open my sleeping bag and you can have some. Mm. And so I sat down beside him and I said to him, what's your name? And we had this magnificent conversation about how he got to be where he was. And it turns out he has this, he was, his name was Paul, but the people locally called him Badger. So he told me that I could call him Badger. He said, you can call oh. me Badger. 
and he had a son and uh, his son was Paul Jr. And at the end of the conversation, I said to him, he'd gotten the, to, on, to be on the streets in the same way as most people do, just one circumstance after another. And because of being violent, he wasn't allowed to stay in that homeless shelter. So I said to him, if there was anything that you'd love me to say to Paul Jr., what would it be? I said, if ever I met him, if ever I was talking publicly and he was listening, what would you want him to know more than anything? And he said, if you meet my Paul, tell him that Badger said there must be a God. And I said to him, really? Why? And he said, he said, see that space over there? And he pointed to a circle flagstone just in front of the cathedral. He said, one day I, I was so desperate, I fell on my knees and I started to cry out to God. And I said, God, if you exist, you have to help me. Hmm. And I said, and? And he said, well, Maria, I don't drink alcohol now until two o'clock every day. And I don't do drugs until six every evening. So you tell my Paul that there must be a God. Hmm. And what struck me about that in the context of our conversation is I often, when I pray, expect the miracle to be the perfect answer to my prayer. I want it big and I want it immediate and I want it dramatic enough, do you know? Like, yeah. like when I cry out to God, I expect God to give me exactly what I want, like a spoiled child. Badger, on the other hand, could see the blessing of God in the small, tiny changes that were happening. And I will never forget him. Like whenever I pray now, I think of Badger praying. Mm -hmm. And more to the point, his listening, not so much what he cried out, but his listening for God. Yeah. He, my listening for God is that God will give me what I want. Badger's listening for God is God will do it in God's own good time. Mm. And I just, I don't, again, I don't know why he comes to mind, except what he does in the context of this conversation. And also maybe one day Paul Jr. will be listening. Hmm. I kind of think that I hope that someday through my speaking, Paul Jr., wherever he is in the world, will hear his father's voice. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed hearing your heart speaking very much. So thank you. Hmm. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Loved Called Gifted podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email lovedcalledgifted at gmail.com. You can find a transcript of this podcast at lovedcalledgifted.com. And that's also the place to go if you're interested in the Loved Called Gifted course, or if you'd like to find out about spiritual direction or coaching. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.